Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We have two stories for you today. The first is called The First Thanksgiving. The second is called A Brave Little Quakeress. The First Thanksgiving by Albert F. Blaisdell. This story was published in Short Stories from American History in 1905 by Blaisdell and Ball. Their story of the 1621 Plymouth Celebration portrays that historical event in a brief, family-friendly manner. We hope you enjoy it. All through the first summer and the early part of autumn, the pilgrims were busy and happy. They had planted and cared for their first fields of corn. They had found wild strawberries in the meadows, raspberries on the hillsides, and wild grapes in the woods. In the forest just back of the village, wild turkeys and deer were easily shot. In the shallow waters of the bay, there was plenty of fish, clams, and lobsters. The summer had been warm, with a good deal of rain and much sunshine, and so when the autumn came, there was a fine crop of corn. "'Let us gather the fruits of our first labors and rejoice together,' said Governor Bradford. "'Yes,' said Elder Brewster. "'Let us take a day upon which we may thank God for all our blessings.' "'and invite to it our Indian friends "'who have been so kind to us. "'The pilgrims said that one day was not enough, "'so they planned to have a celebration for a whole week. "'This took place most likely in October. "'The great Indian chief, Massasoit, "'came with ninety of his bravest warriors, "'all gaily dressed in deerskins, feathers, and foxtails, "'with their faces smeared with red, white, and yellow paint. "'As a sign of rank, Massasoit wore round his neck a string of bones and a bag of tobacco. In his belt he carried a long knife. His face was painted red, and his hair was so daubed with oil that Governor Bradford said he looked greasily. Now there were only eleven buildings in the whole of Plymouth Village, four log storehouses, and seven little log dwelling houses, so the Indian guests ate and slept out of doors. This was no matter— "'for it was one of those warm weeks in the season "'we call Indian summer. "'To supply meat for the occasion, four men had already been sent out "'to hunt wild turkeys. "'They killed enough in one day "'to last the whole company almost a week. "'Massasquat helped the feast along "'by sending some of his best hunters into the woods. "'They killed five deer, "'which they gave to their pale-faced friends "'that they all might have enough to eat. "'Under the trees were built long, "'rude tables on which were piled baked clams, "'broiled fish, roast turkey, and deer meat. "'The young pilgrim women helped serve the food "'to the hungry redskins. "'Let us remember two of the fair girls "'who waited on the tables. "'One was Mary Chilton, "'who leaped from the boat at Plymouth Rock. "'The other was Mary Allerton. "'She lived for seventy-eight years "'after this first Thanksgiving, "'and of those who came over in the Mayflower, "'Mary Allerton was the last to die.' "'What a merry time everybody had during that week. "'It may be they joked Governor Bradford "'about stepping into a deer trap set by the Indians "'and being jerked up by the leg. "'How the women must have laughed "'as they told about the first Monday morning at Cape Cod "'when they all went ashore to wash their clothes. "'It must have been a big washing, "'for there had been no chance to do it at sea, "'so stormy had been the long voyage of sixty-three days. "'They little thought that Monday would afterward be kept as wash day. Then there was young John Howland, who in mid-ocean fell overboard, but was quick enough to catch hold of a trailing rope. 
Perhaps after dinner he invited Elizabeth Tilly, whom he afterward married, to sail over to Clark's Island and return by moonlight. With them, it may be, went John Alden and Priscilla Mullins, whose love story is so sweetly told by Longfellow. One proud mother, we may be sure, showed her bright-eyed boy, Peregrine White. And so the fun went on. In the daytime the young men ran races, played games, and had a shooting match. Every night the Indians sang and danced for their friends, and to make things still more lively, they gave every now and then a shrill war-hoop that made the woods echo in the still night air. The Indians had already learned to love and fear Captain Miles Standish. Some of them called him Boiling Water because he was easily made angry. Others called him Captain Shrimp on account of his small size. Every morning the shrewd captain put on his armor and paraded his little company of a dozen or more soldiers, and when he fired off the cannon on Burial Hill, the Indians must have felt that the English were men of might because they were able to harness up thunder and lightning. During this week of fun and frolic, it was a wonder if young Jack Billington did not play some prank on the Indians. He was the boy who fired off his father's gun one day, close to a keg of gunpowder, in a crowded cabin on the Mayflower. The third day came. Massasquatt had been well treated, and no doubt would have liked to stay longer, but he had said he could stay only three days, so the pipe of peace was silently passed around. Then, taking the presence of glass beads and trinkets, the Indian king and his warriors said farewell to their English friends and began their long tramp through the woods to their wigwams on Mount Hope Bay. On the last day of this Thanksgiving party, the pilgrims had a service of prayer and praise. Elder Brewster preached the first Thanksgiving sermon. After thanking God for all his goodness, he did not forget the many loved ones sleeping on the hillside. He spoke of noble John Carver, the first governor, who had died of worry and overwork. Nor was Rose Standish forgotten, the lovely young wife of Captain Miles Standish, whose death was caused by cold and lack of good food. And then there was gentle Dorothy, wife of Governor Bradford, who had fallen overboard from the Mayflower in Provincetown Harbor, while her husband was coasting along the bleak shore in search of a place for home. The first Thanksgiving took place nearly four hundred years ago. Since that time, almost without interruption, Thanksgiving has been kept by the people of New England as the great family festival of the year. At this time, children and grandchildren return to the old home. The long table is spread, and brothers and sisters, separated often by many miles, again sit side by side. Today, Thanksgiving is observed in all the states of the Union, a season of sweet and blessed memories. We have two stories for you today. We'll return with our second story, right after these sponsor messages. Today's second story, A Brave Little Quakeress, by Edward Payson Rowe, takes us back to the days of the American Revolution, where there was a great divide between the American people. Many wanted to remain subjects of the king. Others wanted to be free from king's rule and govern their own country. That fight, in many cases, pitted father against son and neighbor against neighbor. And this is the story of a brave young Quaker lady whose family became very involved in that struggle. Hope you enjoy it. Not very far from the highlands of the Hudson, but at a considerable distance from the river, there stood, 100 years ago, a farmhouse that evidently had been built as much for strength and defense as for comfort. 
The dwelling was one story and a half in height, and was constructed of hewn logs, fitted closely together, and made impervious to the weather by old-fashioned mortar, which seems to defy the action of time. Two entrances facing each other led to the main or living room, and they were so large that a horse could pass through them, dragging in immense backlogs. These, having been detached from a chain when in the proper position, were rolled into the huge fireplace that yawned like a sooty cavern at the far end of the apartment. A modern housekeeper, who finds wood too dear an article for even the airtight stove, would be appalled by this fireplace. Stalwart Mr. Reynolds, the master of the house, could easily walk under its stony arch without removing his broad-brimmed Quaker hat. From the left side, and at a convenient height from the hearth, a massive crane swung in and out, while high above the center of the fire was an iron hook, or trammel, from which, by chains, were suspended the capacious iron pots used in those days for culinary or for stock-feeding purposes. This trammel, which hitherto had suggested only good cheer, was destined to have in coming years a terrible significance to the household. When the blaze was moderate, or the bed of live coals not too ample, the children could sit on either side of the fireplace and watch the stars through its wide flue, and this was a favorite amusement of Phoebe Reynolds, the eldest daughter of the house. A door opened from the living room into the other apartments, furnished in the old massive style that outlasts many generations. All the windows were protected by stout oaken shutters which, when closed, almost transformed the dwelling into a fortress, giving security against any ordinary attack. There were no loopholes in the walls through which the muzzle of the deadly rifle could be thrust and fired from within. This feature, so common in the primitive abodes of the country, was not in accordance with John Reynolds' Quaker principles. While indisposed to fight, it was evident that the good man intended to interpose between himself and his enemies all the passive resistance that his stout little domicile could offer, and he knew that he had enemies of the bitterest and most unscrupulous character— he was a staunch Whig, loyal to the American cause, and, above all, resolute and active in the maintenance of law and order in those lawless times. He thus had made himself obnoxious to his Tory neighbors, and the object of hate and fear to a gang of marauders, who, under the pretense of acting with the British forces, plundered the country far and near. Claudius Smith, the Robin Hood of the Highlands, and the terror of the pastoral low country, had formerly been their leader, and the sympathy shown by Mr. Reynolds with all the efforts to bring him to justice, which finally resulted in his capture and execution, awakened among his former associates an intense desire for revenge. This fact, well known to the farmer, kept him constantly on his guard, and filled his wife and daughter Phoebe with deep apprehension. At the time of our story, Phoebe was only twelve years of age, but was mature beyond her years. There were several younger children, and she had become almost womanly in aiding her mother in their care. Her stout, plump little body had been developed rather than enfeebled by early toil, and a pair of resolute and often mirthful blue eyes bespoke a spirit not easily daunted. She was a native growth of the period, vitalized by pure air and out-of-door pursuits, and she abounded in the shrewd intelligence and demure refinement of her sect to a degree that led some of their neighbors to speak of her as a little old woman. When alone with the children, however, or in the woods and fields, 
she would doff her Quaker primness and romp, climb trees, and frolic with the wildest of them. But of late, the troublous times and her father's peril had brought unwanted thoughtfulness into her blue eyes, and more than Quaker gravity to the fresh young face, which, in spite of exposure to sun and wind, maintained much of its inherited fairness of complexion. Of her own accord she was becoming a vigilant sentinel, for a rumor had reached Mr. Reynolds that sooner or later he would have a visit from the dreaded mountain gang of hard riders. Two roads leading to the hills converged on the main highway not far from his dwelling, and from an adjacent knoll Phoebe often watched this place, while her father, with a lad in his employ, completed their work about the barn. When the shadows deepened, all was made as secure as possible without and within, and the sturdy farmer, after committing himself and his household to the divine protection, slept as only brave men sleep who are clear in conscience and accustomed to danger. His faith was undoubtedly rewarded, but Providence, in the execution of its will, loves to use vigilant human eyes and ready loving hands. The guardian angel destined to protect the good man was his blooming daughter Phoebe, who had never thought of herself as an angel, and indeed rarely thought of herself at all, as is usually the case with those who do most to sweeten and brighten the world. She was a natural, wholesome, human child, with all a child's unconsciousness of self. She knew she could not protect her father like a great stalwart son, but she could watch and warn him of danger, and as the sequel proved, she could do far more. The farmer's habits were well known, and the ruffians of the mountains were aware that after he had shut himself in, he was much like Noah in his ark. If they attempted to burn him out, the flames would bring down upon them a score of neighbors not hampered by Quaker principles. Therefore they resolved upon a sudden onslaught before he had finished the evening labors of the farm. This was what the farmer feared, and Phoebe, like a vigilant outpost, was now never absent from her place of observation until she was called in. One spring evening she saw two mounted men descending one of the roads which led from the mountains. Instead of jogging quietly out on the highway, as ordinary travelers would have done, they disappeared among the trees. Soon afterward she caught a glimpse of two other horsemen on the second mountain road. One of these soon came into full view, and looked up and down as if to see that all was clear. Apparently satisfied, he gave a low whistle, when three men joined him. Phoebe waited to see no more, but sped toward the house, her flaxen curls flying from her flushed and excited face. "'They're coming, father! They must be quick!' she cried. But a moment or two elapsed before all were within the dwelling. The doors banged and barred, the heavy shutters closed, and the home fortress made secure. Phoebe's warning had come none too soon, for they had scarcely time to take a breath before the tramp of galloping horses and the oaths of their baffled foes were heard without. The marauders did not dare make much noise, or fear that some passing neighbor might give the alarm. Tying their horses behind the house, where they would be hidden from the road, they tried various expedients to gain an entrance, but the logs and heavy planks baffled them. At last one of the number suggested that they should ascend the roof and climb down the wide flue of the chimney. This plan was easy of execution, and for a few moments the stout farmer thought that his hour had come. With a heroism far beyond that of the man who strikes down his assailant, 
he prepared to suffer all things rather than take life with his own hands. But his wife proved equal to this emergency. She had been making over a bed, and a large basket of feathers was within reach. There were live coals on the hearth, but they did not give out enough heat to prevent the ruffians from descending. Two of them were already in the chimney, and were threatening horrible vengeance if the least resistance was offered. Upon the coals on the hearth, the housewife instantly emptied her basket of feathers, and a great volume of pungent, stifling smoke poured up the chimney. The threats of the men, who by means of ropes were cautiously descending, were transformed into choking, half-suffocated sounds, and it was soon evident that the intruders were scrambling out as fast as possible. A hurried consultation on the roof ensued, and then, as if something had alarmed them, they galloped off. With the exception of the cries of the peepers, or hylas, in the adjacent swamp, the night soon grew quiet around the closed and darkened dwelling. Farmer Reynolds bowed in thanksgiving over their escape, and then after watching a few hours, slept as did thousands of others in those times of anxiety. But Phoebe did not sleep. She grew old by moments that night, as do other girls by months and years, as never before she understood that her father's life was in peril. How much that life meant to her and the little brood of which she was the eldest! How much it meant to her dear mother, who was soon again to give birth to a little one that would need a father's protection and support! As the young girl lay in her little attic room, with dilated eyes and ears intent on the slightest sound, she was ready for any heroic self-sacrifice, without once dreaming that she was heroic. The news of the night attack spread fast, and there was a period of increased vigilance which compelled the outlaws to lie close in their mountain fastnesses. But Phoebe knew that her father's enemies were still at large, with their hate only stimulated because baffled for a time. Therefore she did not in the least relax her watchfulness, and she besought their nearest neighbors to come to their assistance should any alarm be given. When the spring and early summer passed without further trouble, they all began to breathe more freely. But one July night, John Reynolds was betrayed by his patriotic impulses. He was awakened by a loud knocking at his door. Full of misgiving, he rose and hastily dressed himself. Phoebe, who had slipped on her clothes at the first alarm, joined him and said earnestly, "'Don't thee open that door, father, to anybody at this time of night.' And his wife, now lying ill and helpless on a bed in the adjoining room, added her entreaty to that of her daughter. In answer, however, to Mr. Reynolds' inquiries, a voice from without, speaking quietly and seemingly with authority, asserted that they were a squad from Washington's forces in search of deserters, and that no harm would ensue unless he denied their lawful request. Conscience of innocence, and aware that detachments were often abroad on such authorized quests, Mr. Reynolds unbarred his door. The moment he opened it, he saw his terrible error. Not soldiers, but the members of the mountain gang were crouched like wild beasts, ready to spring upon him. "'Fly, father!' cried Peavy. "'They won't hurt us!' But before the bewildered man could think what to do, the door flew open from the pressure of half a dozen wild-looking desperadoes, and he was powerless in their grasp. They evidently designed murder, but not a quick and merciful one. They first heaped upon their victim the vilest epithets, seeking in their thirst for revenge to inflict all terrors of death in anticipation. 
The good man, however, now face to face with his fate, grew calm and resigned. Exasperated by his courage, they began to cut and torture him with their swords and knives. Phoebe rushed forward to interpose her little form between her father and the ruffians, and was dashed, half-stunned, into a corner of the room. Even for the sake of his sick wife, the brave farmer could not refrain from uttering groans of anguish which brought the poor woman with faltering steps into his presence. After one glance at the awful scene, she sank, half-fainting, on a settee near the door. When the desire for plunder got the better of their fiendish cruelty, one of the gang threw a noosed rope over Mr. Reynolds' head, and then they hanged him to the trammel or iron hook in the great chimney. "'You can't smug us out this time!' they shouted. "'You've now got to settle with the Avengers of Claudius Smith, "'and you and some others will find us ugly customers to settle with.' "'They then rushed off to rob the house, "'for the farmer was reputed to have not a little money in his strong box. "'The moment they were gone, Phoebe seized a knife and cut her father down. "'Terror and excitement gave her almost supernatural strength, "'and with the aid of the boy in her father's service, "'she got the poor man on a bed which he had occupied during his wife's illness.' Her reviving mother was beginning to direct her movements when the ruffians again entered, and furious with rage, they again seized and hanged her father, while one, more brutal than the others, whipped the poor child with a heavy rope until he thought she was disabled. The girl at first cowered and shivered under the blows, and then sank as if lifeless on the floor. But the moment she was left to herself, she darted forward and once more cut her father down. The robbers then flew upon the prostrate man, and cut and stabbed him until they supposed he was dead. Toward his family they meditated a more terrible and devilish cruelty. After sacking the house and taking all the plunder they could carry, they relieved the horror-stricken wife and crying, shrieking children of their presence. Their further action, however, soon inspired Phoebe with a new and more awful fear, for she found that they had fastened the doors on the outside and were building a fire against one of them. For a moment, an overpowering despair at the prospect of their fate almost paralyzed her. She believed her father was dead. The boy who had aided her at first was now dazed and helpless from terror. If aught could be done in this supreme moment of peril, she saw that it must be done by her hands. The smoke from the kindling fire without was already curling in through the crevices around the door. There was not a moment, not a second, to be lost. The ruffians' voices were growing fainter, and she heard the sounds of their horses' feet. Would they go away in time for her to extinguish the fire? She ran to her attic room and cautiously opened the shutter. Yes, they were mounting, and in the faint light of the late-rising moon she saw that they were taking her father's horses. A moment later, as if fearing that the blaze might cause immediate pursuit, they dashed off toward the mountains. The clatter of their horses' hoofs had not died away before the intrepid girl had opened the shutter of a window nearest the ground, and springing lightly out with a pail in her hand, she rushed to the trough near the barn, which she knew was full of water. Back and forth she flew between the fire and the convenient reservoir with all the water that her bruised arms and back permitted her to carry. Fortunately the night was a little damp, and the stout thick door had kindled slowly. To her intense joy she soon gained the mastery of the flames, and at last extinguished them. She did not dare to open the door for fear that the robbers might return, but clambering in at the window made all secure as had been customary, 
"'for now it was her impulse to do just as her father would have done. "'She found her mother on her knees beside her father, "'who would indeed have been a ghastly and awful object "'to all but the eyes of love. "'Oh, Phoebe, I hope, I almost believe, thy father lives,' cried the woman. "'Is it my throbbing palm, or does his heart still beat?' "'I'm sure it beats, mother,' cried the girl, "'putting her little hand on the gashed and mangled body. "'Oh, then there's hope. "'Here, Abner, to the boy. "'Isn't there any man in thee? "'Help Phoebe get him on the bed. "'Then we must stop this awful bleeding. "'Oh, that I were well and strong. "'Phoebe, thee must now take my place. "'Thee may save thy father's life. "'I can tell thee what to do if thee has the courage.' "'Phoebe had the courage.' and with deft hands did her mother's bidding. She staunched the many gaping wounds. She gave spirits at first, drop by drop, until at last the man breathed and was conscious. Even before the dawn began to brighten over the dreaded highlands which their ruthless enemies were already climbing, Phoebe was flying, bareheaded, across the fields to their nearest neighbor. The good people heard of the outrage with horror and indignation. A half-grown lad sprang on the bare back of a young horse and galloped across the country for a surgeon. A few moments later, the farmer, equipped for chase and battle, dashed away at headlong pace to alarm the neighborhood. The news spread from house to house and hamlet to hamlet like fire and prairie grass. The sun had scarcely risen before a dozen bronzed and stern-browed men were riding into John Reynolds' farmyard under the lead of young Hal June, the best shot that the wars had left in the region. The surgeon had already arrived, and before he ceased from his labors, he had dressed thirty wounds. The story told by Phoebe had been as brief as it was terrible, for she was eager to return to her father and sick mother. She had not dreamed of herself as the heroine of the affair, and had not given any such impression, although more than one had remarked that she was a plucky little chick to give the alarm before it was light. "'but when the proud mother faintly and tearfully "'related the particulars of the tragedy "'and told how Phoebe had saved her father's life "'and probably her mother's, "'for,' her mother said, "'I was too sick to climb out of a window. "'When she told how the child, "'after a merciless whipping, "'had again cut her father down from the trammel-hook, "'had extinguished the fire, "'and had been nursing her father back to life, "'while all the time in almost agony herself "'from the cruel blows that had been rained upon her, Phoebe was dazed and bewildered at the storm of applause that greeted her, and when the surgeon, in order to intensify the general desire for vengeance, showed the great welts and scars on her arms and neck, gray-bearded fathers who had known her from infancy took her into their arms and blessed and kissed her. For once in his life, young Hal June wished he was a graybeard, but his course was much more to the mind of Phoebe than any number of caresses would have been. Springing on his great black horse, "'and with his dark eyes burning with a fire "'that only blood could quench, he shouted, "'Come, neighbors, it's time for deeds. "'That brave little woman ought to make a man "'of every mother's son of us.' "'And he dashed away so furiously "'that Phoebe thought with a strange little tremor at her heart "'that he might in his speed face the robbers all alone. "'The stout yeomen clattered after him. "'The sound of their pursuit soon died away, "'and Phoebe returned to woman's work of nursing, "'watching, and praying.' The bandits of the hills, not expecting such prompt retaliation, were overtaken, and then followed a headlong race over the rough mountain roads, guilty wretches flying for life, 
"'and stern men almost reckless in the burning desire "'to avenge a terrible wrong. "'Although the horses of the marauders were tired, "'their riders were so well acquainted "'with the fastnesses of the wilderness "'that they led the pursuers through exceedingly difficult "'and dangerous paths. "'At last, June, ever in the van, "'caught sight of a man's form, "'and almost instantly his rifle awoke "'a hundred echoes among the hills. "'When they reached the place, "'stains of blood marked the ground.' "'proving that at least a wound had been given. "'Just beyond, the gang evidently had dispersed, "'each one for himself, "'leaving behind everything that impeded their progress. "'The region was almost impenetrable in its wildness, "'except by those who knew all its rugged paths. "'The body of the man whom June had wounded, however, "'was found, clothed in a suit of Quaker drab "'stolen from Mr. Reynolds. "'The rest of the band, with few exceptions, "'met with fates that accorded their deeds.' Phoebe had the happiness of nursing her father back to health, and although maimed and disfigured, he lived to a ripe old age. If the bud is the promise of the flower, Phoebe must have developed a womanhood that was regal in its worth. At the same time, I believe that she always remained a modest, demure little Quakeress, and never thought of her virtues, except when reminded of them, in plain English. Note. In the preceding narrative, I have followed almost literally a family tradition of events which actually occurred. Thank you for joining us today for these two great stories at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We always appreciate reviews, and we've got some new reviews to share with you. Great selection of stories. Five stars. I'm enjoying listening to these stories. John is a great narrator. It's a great way to unwind. Keep up the good work. And this one, Love Your Stories, Five Stars. The classic short stories that are told bring comfort to my workday, making my hard work more enjoyable. Thank you. Now from D-Town Shooter, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all very much for taking the time to leave these reviews. They are greatly, greatly appreciated. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Our shows now appear every Wednesday and Sunday night here at 1001 Classic Short Stories. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.